You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm not complaining. Um, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show. Um, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Rhonda McGee. You've written a book that I've been listening to. Uh, I will show people. I can't hold the book up. I'll show them what it looks like on a smartphone. It looks like that on a smartphone. Um, <laughs> the name of the book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Have, I have talk- one here. Oh, now there's the actual, that's what the book would look like. The actual book. The actual book looks remarkably like the image on my smartphone, although larger. Um, so I want to talk about your book, and I also want to talk about the work you do associated with it. You're a law professor. I am. And you are bringing uh, mindfulness into the the curriculum at the University of San Francisco, which is notable in itself. And then uh, beyond that, you're, you're bringing mindfulness in. In a particular context, the context of, you know, issues of race, consciousness of race, consciousness of bias, and so on. Exactly. Um, so why don't you um, start out by telling us a little about yourself, um, where you're from, and how you became interested in uh, mindfulness. Great, yeah. So again, thank you, Bob, very much for having me on My your pleasure. show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um a little bit about myself. I was born in North Carolina. Um, I think it's important sometimes to say exactly when and where. That kind of context seems important for this conversation. Mm-hmm. In 1967, in a little town called Kinston, it was, um, in my experience of it, still quite mm, segregated in the ways that um, a lot of southern towns were, not only southern towns in our country, um, as a legacy of, of this history of, of, um, you know, racism and racial segregation. So I was born there, um, raised in North Carolina and Virginia, um, went to school at the University of Virginia and, um, studied, uh, sociology there, graduate sociology and then law, and then moved out to the West Coast to start a career at a law firm here in San Francisco. And it was about that time that I kind of realized that while I'd been really well trained for a certain kind of, let's say, engagement with our society and the kind of success uh, pathways um, that our culture had enabled finally for a person like me that were not available, frankly, for my parents' generation and certainly my grandparents' generation coming from where we did and from the class background, racial class background that we did. Mm-hmm. So I had managed to, to sort of um, really outperform expectations and open up opportunities and take advantage of opportunities that were open as a result of the civil rights movement, frankly. And I felt very clearly that something had been lost along the way. Like something that my grandmother knew, for example, in her comparatively less traditionally, you know, well-educated. Um, uh, she was not given, as I mentioned, any, she was a, she, she had cleaned houses for other people mm-hmm. and was doing that at the time when I was, you know, a young girl living in some, to some degree with her off and on. She was um, getting up every day and cleaning houses. Um, she had been picking tobacco for much of her life. In other words, she had been living 
playing, uh, serving in roles, as I often say, that were remarkably similar to the kinds of roles she would have been relegated to in a slave society. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, and when she, you say something yeah. had been lost, you mean something had not been transmitted to your generation, or? Yeah, well, to me in particular, about how, in particular, the the piece that I was referring to there was something about how to center oneself in one's own sense of value and worth hmm. and purposefulness. Was she religious? She actually was religious. And for her, it was a Christian-based centering. Um, and in fact, she had been called to the ministry by the time I was a little girl. So while she was cleaning houses, you know, five days a week, the one house actually, not houses, but one home, going there nine to five, taking had taken care of kids there, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And a cast. You know, it's it's funny. I just saw the Broadway production of To Kill a Mockingbird, and she. I don't know if you've seen that recently or read it, but but the, 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 the character is it Calpurnia. There's a character who I, I would think this is almost the exact same hmm. era. Mm-hmm. In the South, mm-hmm. like this is in the 30s. I, I don't know when she would have been originally doing this. Anyway, that's well, that's a digression. But yeah, but, she, but well, in other words, she had a house, a, a single house, and she yeah. was yes, kind of the go-to person for a lot of things there. Precisely. So in the 30s, that's when my mother was born. My grandmother having been born in 1906. Mm-hmm. So yes, my grandmother would have been coming up through that same period, perhaps performing a similar role while raising her own children and often leaving them less well cared for while going off to take care of others again in a way that was, but for a little bit replicating the patterns we set in place in our history of slavery and segregation that we think of oftentimes as way, way back there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, my, um, my upbringing was infused with embeddedness in a kind of a context that made it really present for me that, um, you know, opportunities were structured in ways that were tied to our identities. And for me, racialized black and cisgender female, right? So a woman, black woman in that time, coming up in that time, I knew that born in 67, the last year of Martin Luther King's life, things were not going to be exactly the same. And turns out they weren't. I did have these opportunities that weren't available. I went to University of Virginia and did all these wonderful things. But um, what what I didn't learn uh, that my grandmother had figured out was again how to, notwithstanding what might come your way, notwithstanding having to bear up with one's back against the wall, you know, facing difficulties, headwinds, all of that, you know, a society not created for your benefit, but how nevertheless to meet each day with a sense of, again, clarity and purpose, value. Mm-hmm. Not derived from the things of this world necessarily, mm-hmm. and so yeah, it was a Christian-based, um, religious-based uh, set of commitments, but it was grounded in daily practice and discipline. And so I would see her as a little girl get up before dawn. Uh, she had this quiet time. We didn't. I didn't know exactly 
didn't have language for all that was happening when I was really little and witnessing this light come up on beneath the door of her room. But I kind of knew and learned that that was her time. And I later realized and learned more that this was centering prayer time. Later she would read um, scriptures and from that place then go out, take care of us, get us going, go out and do the work she had to do. And then ultimately on the weekends she also did community-based teachings, you know, helped feed and help convene spaces where people in our community could feel mm-hmm. supported. So again, coming from a place of not very much, right? We didn't have a lot of material wealth at all. We nevertheless managed, I saw, I bore witness to a way of um, moving through the world that was grounded in practice and discipline. And while for me, I had already begun to kind of inquire more deeply into the range of different ways that spirituality and religiosity might manifest. I had studied various forms of, you know, looked from a sociological perspective at how religion plays out differently across different societies and cultures. So I was looking at um, some other ways and drawn to ways of really understanding how the mind might work more. And so that's what led me um, into looking at Buddhism mm-hmm. and practicing, uh, sort of. Had, had you, I mean, tell me, tell me when I get too personal. But had you lost your religion? I mean, were you still identifying as a Christian? I was not really. I didn't. I had not. I had probably not ever. I don't know when I'd last identified as a Christian. So mm-hmm. somewhere, yes, the answer is yes. The answer is somewhere as probably a teen. I kind of just started to see a lot of the ways in which at least the way that Christianity was being presented to me um, did not quite line up with what seemed um, there was something that wasn't quite that, that, that I didn't quite uh, see. I don't know how to put it, but there was just some inconsistencies mm-hmm. and some ways that I just just didn't see um, the the kind of integrity and alignment. The the I, I saw gaps between some of the values that were being described and some of the ways that I saw people living, and I just really felt that um, there had to be some other way of um, really finding clarity um, and finding a way of engaging with the, you know, the many different dimensions of what it means to be alive in body, but in a world to be, you know, kind of a be reaching towards something immaterial or religious or spiritual, but also to be, you know, kind of embodied in the particular ways that we are and up against the particular challenges that we're up against in this world. So some way of like really looking at how to clarify the mind Mm -hmm. and how to be in, 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 you know, so a robust relationship with how it is that we're constantly invited to narrow our view of ourselves and kind of um, engage in societies and our social and cultural trainings about how to be in this life. But on the other hand, for me, wanting not to be not to be limited by that. Um, So I, I kept really found myself looking for more, you know, more precise ways of understanding and working with my own mind in, in, in an embodied, you know, in the world. And for me, at least, um, the teachings of the Buddha ended up being the closest approximation to me of like what really seemed to be, um, 
deep wisdom around that. And so was the was the was the first contact with Buddhist teachings or was it with meditation and just or, or another way of asking is like what yeah. was the big breakthrough that kind of sold you on this? Was it finding that meditation worked for you? Uh and if so, what was the context of that? Yeah. Yeah, so thank you. Actually, it was more meditation mm-hmm. and it wasn't actually Buddhist as such, the very first meditation text and practice that I found was um, from a book uh, called the Bhagavad Gita for Daily Living. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Do you have a copy? Let me show you something. Sword on? Let me show you something. This is one of my three, uh, my oh several my volumes. There you <laughs> go. That's the book. I mean, it was a paperback edition. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll sell that? you the hardcover, but we can talk about that later. No, I won't, actually. It's an important book. It was, an, You know, come to think of it, I was reading that before I was interested in Buddhism. Exactly. I found yeah. that through my boyfriend then and after some partitioning, part, parting of the ways, once again now, my partner in life, um, whose background is actually um, South Asian uh, heritage, his family immigrated from India. He was born here. And so he had this on his shelves. You know, we were both young lawyers out here in California. And I was really struggling after taking the bar and preparing for my job here, knowing I needed something. Again, feeling like something that my grandmother and other people knew about how to manage, you know, even with these quote unquote new opportunities and in this new place, I just really could feel the way that I was disconnected and um, compartmentalized in in ways that I I really wanted to feel myself whole and feel myself grounded again. And so looking for something, found this um, beautiful book by Eknath Esoran, Bhagavad Gita for Daily Living, and started to explore meditation as it was described in the pages of that. And it was from that beginning of exploration that I really started to see, oh, meditation is something that seems to be an experiential doorway in for me. And and then I ultimately, through that, while uh, going down and exploring that path, found the teachings of the Buddha and found um, a variety of different ways to deepen um, the exploration of Buddhism. Okay. So we probably have uh, some people listening who are familiar with mindfulness. I mean, I'm sure everyone has heard the word by now, but 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 some people have probably only heard the, the word or a kind of a cursory description. Can you um, talk about how mindfulness helped you with maybe some specific things? Kind of describe to people what it's like uh, using mindfulness meditation to to come to terms with certain feelings or certain things you're encountering or certain issues you're having. Yeah. So just to say, I mean, I think of mindfulness as a shorthand for a number of things, right? That term, Mm -hmm. you know, it means a lot of different things to many different people. To me, it's a form of meditation on the one hand. On the other, it's kind of a a shorthand for, I sometimes use it when I'm really talking about the whole eightfold path, um, that the Buddha described, mm-hmm. of which right mindfulness is just one piece. Um, but to answer your question, 
how does mindfulness sort of help support me? How did I see that as the kind of support that I felt like I had not gotten <laughs> through all these refined trainings? By the way, I was also trained to be a military officer. I did Army mm. ROTC, really? right? I became a lieutenant. I did all of these things. I think for me, um, the centering practices of mindfulness, the invitation to um, consciousness of uh, particular aspects of our experience to um, identifying practices for refining awareness, right? Awareness of starting with, say, for example, the simple practice of awareness of breath um, and breathing in a, in a body <laughs> in, in a moment. Um, I found those kinds of practices assisted me or supported me when I might feel myself getting overwhelmed, triggered, hooked, worried about something. So, you know, feeling myself, for for example, mm, disrespected in a certain space. Mm-hmm. I can think right now, for example, of a time when I was trying to buy a car, actually, here in the Bay Area. And I, quote, unquote, made the mistake of wearing my, um, you know, wearing my Saturday uh, afternoon clothing, uh, like a sweatsuit. Which made you not look like a serious car buyer to the salesperson. Well, especially as a black embodied woman. I see. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, <laughs> did, did you even have a hoodie? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right? Exactly. Right. That's the idea. Right. Right. Um, I didn't have on a suit, and I've been trained, if you will, by our culture. To know that um, while a suit doesn't protect me doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily get a certain kind of respect, but it, it is, you know, it, it, it ups the likelihood that I will be seen, um, that, you know, people will see through the whatever they're caring about, how petite black woman is or is not, you know, the person they are expecting wherever we are. And so in an economic context, whether it's buying a car or shopping for a home or et cetera, et cetera, um, looking for a job, obviously there are ways that um, the politics of presentation have been something I've paid a lot of attention to. And so there I was in my sweats thinking, not necessarily, you know, just having found myself in the car dealership and, and not able to get, anyone to attend right Mm. you know a salesperson to take me seriously and then asking for the manager and having the manager kind of stand by the salesperson as if i wasn't worthy of their attention of course i ended up buying car elsewhere but that kind of experience you know how does one respond to that if Mm -hmm. that's a kind of experience that might happen in our day-to-day existence, not just occasionally, but might actually happen on a regular basis. For me, um, having a way to notice where my mind might go with that, notice what emotions are coming up in response, um, notice what stories might be coming up about the people who I think uh, are treating me in this way, mm-hmm. and just notice them as opposed to sort of... Um, following them and, and, and making, making, uh, building on narratives around them and making plans, et cetera, to drop all of that and then come back into some sort of sense of who I am, what I'm here to do, and a sense of an array of choices of how to respond. 
Mm-hmm. That to me is something that mindfulness assisted me with. And that's just, that's just like an example. Of so now, was that in the moment that you exercised the mindfulness or more in the way of reflecting on it afterwards? In the moment. Um, yeah. And especially now over, um, uh, over the years of practice, um, I, I, it is much more of a momentary experience for me. But even then, and this was, just a few years into um, really a year or two into the explorations. This is, this is way back at that moment where I'm just right around the time of I'm finding the meditation practice and mm-hmm. had not at all begun the deeper exploration. Even um, back then, you know, I could see that some way of, of noticing when I might, you know, be tempted to kind of go off on a tangent and be pulled out of who I am, mm-hmm. you know, into a reactivity as opposed to what I now see as a more choiceful way of responding. Even back then, I could see how mindfulness meditation, how meditation practices were a ground of support for me. And so, so it's been that exploration that's led me into the work that I've been doing. Okay, so I, I guess not being reactive in the moment, for one thing, kept you from turning it into a big conflict, uh, which probably wouldn't wouldn't have done anybody any good. It's probably easier on your system, you, you just your own system, to not uh, spend the rest of the day angry about it. Probably kept you from constructing a larger narrative than was really then you really had grounds for in terms of like exactly exactly why what's going on in this person's head how evil they are and so on exactly. now so you were you were able to maintain your equanimity and this leads to uh, a question i'm sure you've encountered it, it's asked about uh, kind of buddhism and mindfulness meditation broadly Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the question is in this context the question is well maybe you should have gotten a little upset maybe you maybe it would have been better for the cause of social justice if you had had the confrontation i mean i mean the broader question that's asked about buddhism is isn't there a point beyond which you don't want to maintain your equanimity you don't want to have your activist passion kind of doused, right? And I'm sure you could ask this, and maybe this can lead us into discussion of what you you are doing exactly. uh, on the on the social justice front, what you're doing right. with your law students. But why don't you? Yeah, uh, I'm sure you've heard the question. What's your what's your answer? Such an it's a good it's a very good question. Uh, right. So again, it's it's for me important to understand that we have choices in terms of how to respond that um you know meeting uh, uh, a sense of injustice with like an immediate kind of escalation of the energy uh of anger or um righteous sort of um challenge and confrontation is a choice and it has some consequence and sometimes, and for some people, it might be just the right thing. Um, but there are, it, there are a number, like there are many different ways to work with injustices that we see. For me, certainly it didn't go away. It didn't become, you know, a thing I kind of ignored and didn't pursue, right? I, I, yeah. I for me, it became part of, uh, the fuel that encouraged me when I had an opportunity 
to insist on offering a class about racism and justice in contemporary America at the mm-hmm. University of San Francisco, you know, five years later. So, and that work has supported thousands of law students and now thousands of people who are practicing law, who are city manager of San Francisco on the one hand or, or you know, operating in positions of influence to have a deeper engagement with contemporary racism. So that is a choice that I was able to make that um, enables me to feel like I'm, you know, providing uh, an avenue into engagement and confrontation that is of some benefit. So in other words, yeah, no pacification on here. Uh, this <laughs> It didn't end up pacifying me. It did enable me to see that there are a range of different ways, right? I could have, I could have, you know, gotten into a kind of confrontation and it might have um, gone somewhere. I mean, I'm not, it's not to say that I didn't challenge, right? I, I, I did do some challenging, challenging the salesperson to bring in the manager. Yeah, it sounds like manager. you did, yeah. And I didn't let it go, but I also was able to see this, this dimension of it. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, this dimension of it, that's about, What's happening to my heart and my own body while this is going on? So all of these things can be happening, right? Um, you know, I could have organized a protest right then and there. I might have also brought mindfulness into the organization of that. In other words, it need not be seen as an either-or proposition. I was just with some folks in New York just this past weekend exploring in a day-long, um, at a day-long retreat, just how this might be so, that these practices, in fact, have are oh, apply on so many different dimensions. If you think about the work that Martin Luther King did, if you think about the work that Gandhi did, if you think about the work that Angela Davis did, the work of changing structures of oppression requires multidimensional mastery and skillfulness. It requires some way of being more purposefully, intentionally engaged with the choices that we have as embodied beings in every moment. It doesn't mean that we are, so mindfulness, while helping me, it seems, be in this process, you know, and it's it's kind of an ongoing, lifelong process. I don't feel like for me, you know, I've kind of arrived somewhere where I don't have work to do. But for me to know that I have, you know, some tools, if you will, practices, a way, a way of being with reality that can help keep me aware and present and and, uh, in a place to see the choices that I have and also to see the embeddedness, embeddedness of, of what's coming up for me in a world, in a context, which destabilizes for me some of the temptation to hyper-individualize everything, mm-hmm. whether it's happening with me or with you or anybody, but therefore then to see how the interconnectedness of things, the interrelationships of things um, in ways that that just sort of infinitely for me so far, it seems, I don't, infinite is a word that's hard for me to use when I describe my own experience, but let's just say there are so many different ways where I see mindfulness and these practices and the way and the philosophy that supports them, the disciplines that support them. I see these things as really helping radically open up in a kaleidoscope kind of way 
the sense of what's possible in any given mm-hmm. moment. Not to kind of, um, for me, it hasn't been about um, pacification and a pathway into inaction. It's been the opposite. It's opened up this sense that of my own agency and the potential of any moment with any people for some radical new way of being to emerge and new opportunity uh, to be um, to manifest in the direction of transformation. Okay. So why don't we talk about how this plays out uh, in your class with students? Now, you've got students who are on, I don't want to say various sides of this issue, but who who, who have various mm-hmm. kinds of relationships to the issues you're talking about. Yes, I do. So you might have uh, white people yeah. who you think might, be able to do a better job than they've done of understanding how being white has been an advantage mm-hmm. or or how they react. I mean, I'll tell you quickly a weird thing that happened. When I was, this is maybe the kind of thing you deal with. I was driving here, uh, driving home just now. Car in front of me had just a few houses down, had its lights flashing. So it got my attention, it had flashers on, I pulled over. And uh, as I then uh, he pulled over to, to pick up a woman who was waiting on the side. She was white. He was black. The driver was black. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and my first reaction was, oh, he's the driver. Like, it's a professional relationship. It's not a friend picking up a friend. Mm-hmm. Now, in my defense, the fact that the flashers were on did lead me in the direction of like, hey, maybe there's uh, some kind of, it, that's the professional protocol he's doing. So, you know, yes, but yes. still, is are you interested in getting people to think about, to ask mm-hmm. themselves, like, did I jump to a conclusion that may or may not have been warranted? Yeah, exactly. I am very much. And that's a that's a great example of a very everyday moment um, to which we might bring a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Like what what was what what just happened there? Um because I think, you know, neurobiologists, neuroscientists are helping us understand that the way we perceive the world is to a degree that we maybe didn't understand before predictive. Like what we predict and expect is kind of what we quote unquote see. Mm-hmm. And, if, and therefore, you know, again, our the content of their cognitive categories that psychologists call schema, right? The, the ways we categorize the world and sort of make sense of the world. Um, we all have them. We all do it. You know, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't figured out a way to kind of have a lot of heuristics and shortcuts, right, by which we sort of perceive and understand the world. But the pro- a problem is that we can over-rely on those heuristics and shortcuts, and it can make it hard for us to actually see more of what might be going on. Yeah. And so if we are not careful and not curious and not open to being wrong, right? And open to seeing things more more clearly. We certainly can miss a lot. We certainly can be operating from the automaticity of our heuristics. And so, you know, perceiving that we see somebody serving another person who might actually be a lover, a boyfriend, a family member, um, mm-hmm. a minister, a teacher. We, you know, and this, this is what we mean by stereotypes. And on the one hand, you know, often they may have no apparent harm, 
right? Maybe doing no apparent harm. Um, but the inquiry around it is very, very important because just knowing that, at, you know, because we're human and because we've been trained and, and we, you know, had a certain pathway to this moment that has prefigured how we perceive things in the world. If we are aware of that, it can assist us in the work of um, just sort of um, working with the tendency that those heuristics might bias us in ways that we wouldn't necessarily necessarily choose or affirm if we were more present. So you see, for example, research that shows that, um, you know, bias inflects how we respond to emails. We look at a name or how we respond to resumes. We look at a name. We, we sort of infuse names with biases around gender and race and culture. And it impacts, let's say in academia, research has shown, how quickly we'll respond to an email if we tend to think that the person emailing us is from a more dominant category, male and white racialized, no matter what the recipient's background is. Because we've all imbibed these trainings around who matters and who doesn't. And so for me, yes, creating opportunities for us to be more present to what our mind is doing. Research has shown that while, you know, there's evidence, let's say research has shown, there's evidence (laughs) to suggest that while um, all of us engage in different types of bias, um, and therefore, you know, on the one hand, people can say, well, there's nothing we can do. Actually, there's evidence that suggests that if we are more conscious, if we do invite this kind of curiosity, if we find other ways of disrupting what might be our tendencies, we actually can minimize the way in which these biases that we have actually impact the things we do in the world. In other words, it's something that we can work on. And there are ways to work on it personally, interpersonally, and in our institutional and communal environments. Um, So to say that everybody does it, and stop there, and that by itself can be demoralizing. We can say, well, then there's nothing we can do. But actually, it is very important, I think, to see that not only does are most of us vulnerable to, in some ways, and maybe we're all vulnerable, to, you know, we were our brains were formed to, to, to make these predictive kinds of assumptions about each other. That doesn't mean we um, don't have any tools to help us minimize the way in which these assumptions might basically reinstate and reinforce the patterns that we've been raised with. And if we care about a world in which there is more and more inclusivity or equity or fairness, whatever word really egalitarianism, let's say, if we, if we are, if we feel like liberation for all is something we believe in, and minimizing the way structures and cultures keep some of us relegated to those kinds of positions, as I was mentioning at the outset, that my grandmother and people who look like me were kept in for many, you know, for generations. If we're looking for a world where more of us are actually freer to kind of move through the world in ways that don't restrict us just based on what we look like or our gender, our sex orientation, and so on, then being curious about how these heuristics, how these stereotypes, how our trainings, our conditionings might be getting in the way even of our values and our, you know, our stated expectations. Being curious about that, I think, is just 
just a, a legacy of being aware and being mindful and, mm-hmm. and grounding in the ethics of that. Okay. So it's not like my making that assumption was the biggest crime I could have committed, but just being aware of that kind of thing could lead me in a more consequential situation to be aware of something, like if I'm evaluating resumes or something. Exactly. That's the thing. And uh, I think I was maybe aware enough to immediately reflect on the judgment I had made in part because I had been uh, reading your book and, and early on you have an example where you first tell us that this this guy, I, I think this is in high school, was your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You talk about it a while and then you say, now stop, what, how are you imagining this guy? And it turns out he's white in real mm-hmm. life and, and that's an interesting exercise in its own right. Mm-hmm. Now, would you, so in class, I would assume that when you're, if you're, if the students are white, you might get a variety of reactions um, to uh, the suggestion that there's some value in their reflecting on these things, right? I mean, certainly there, there. I, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the concern that with certain kinds of people talking about white privilege and white supremacy will only make things worse. Certain kinds of r- white people will be reactive in a way that's counterproductive, right? It's like, I mean, uh, well, I don't want to get into current politics and, and, and so on, but, uh, yes. there, there does seem to be, um, you know, out there some amount of resentment yes. of the emphasis of, of what is called identity politics in, in I, those circles yeah. and so on. So have you encountered a whole range of reactions in your classroom to the, uh, along this spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the reasons why, you know, so my classes on race and law are, um, are self-selected um, mm. electives, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, when the class is a more mandatory class, which I also teach classes that are, required of certain students um, to the degree I talk about these. So for example, I teach a tort law class, personal injury, negligence, malpractice, you know, um, if in that class, the topic of race, gender, these sorts of identity issues comes up as it of course will in some, you know, it's part of our everyday life. It's part of the fact patterns of some of the cases it's in the air, right? Whenever, whenever I enter, <laughs> the classroom, these issues can arise. And yeah, it's, it is, it is a challenge when people have not self-selected to be in this conversation to invite people to turn toward them, this, this aspect of our experience. Because again, we live in a world. And as you so correctly, beautifully pointed out, at this particular moment, people are being kind of, I would say, um, tempted into much more of kind of a very divisive way of thinking about and engaging with these issues. Um, and so it's, 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 it's challenging to, you know, to bring this into, into engagement with people who have not self-selected to be in the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet again, this is where mindfulness can help. Uh, it certainly helps me. Because, uh, nevertheless, there are times when it has to be brought in. Um, and for me, there is a way that some of the dominant discourse about how to bring this in mm, could benefit from deeper engagement with 
what I'm calling mindfulness and related compassion practices. Mm -hmm. In other words, for example, if we know, as we do, that we're in a time where we're coming into conversations from radically different bases of information, even understandings of history, right? You know, as even compared today, today I would say my, my, my students are comprised of young, not always very young, but often people in their 20s who are coming in from very different backgrounds and places, sometimes different cultures, sometimes internationally. So just to have the people around the table, you are bringing together people from very, very different bases of information. And that's even more so today than perhaps it was 20 years ago when I first started teaching. In other words, with the internet and with homeschooling and with all of these different, you know, the prevalence of um, very, very kind of different ways that people have been prepared, if you will, around relevant histories. Um, because all of that is is sort of uh, often kind of contested and contentious as as a background for, for thinking about these issues. Um, I know that any time these topics come up, there's bound to be a potential for conflict, a potential for uh, emotional hijacking, right? A potential for uh, misunderstanding, cognitive dissonance, right? Where somebody says, well, this is my experience to the cops. And someone over here says, I had an absolutely, completely opposite experience. And not and missing up, misunderstanding each other is sort of, you know, quite possibly bound to happen. It's one thing to kind of, um, you know, you can prepare exactly the same sort of you know discussion about microaggressions and bias, let's say, A, from a place of uh, mindfulness where you apprehend that all of this is happening or might happen and hmm, have a way of a sort of creating a context in which some ability to create a space where we can hold more of all of what is happening, right? Using, for example, I use the teaching acronym RAIN quite a bit, where we recognize, accept, not forever, but for the moment, this is all here, yeah? And then investigate with some sort of non-judgmental, non-attaching, even nurturing, as some people say. In other words, having a ground of practice can make all the difference when it is that we want to introduce this idea of bias or microaggression. We can pause, we can recognize and not be shocked, surprised, or triggered by reactivity in the room. Of course there's going to be reactivity if people have never heard these things before, if they're coming into it from, as they will be, very different bases of experience. So over, you know, it's, um, I guess, it's been a journey for me of really experiencing and experimenting with and exploring how these practices support this, the very kinds of engagements that you're describing. And I think for me, it's, it's been so clear that this is exactly what we need in academia. It's what we need in complex multicultural democracies. If you want to bring people together, if you're going to bring people together from radically different walks of life and try to get us on the same page for doing anything, 
which in my view is what academia and certainly law, legal academia should be about, right? Creating spaces where we can learn from each other and discern together a provisional way of addressing this issue or that, knowing we might have to revisit it as we get more information, et cetera, but we want to be moving together as best we can to address something concrete in the world. Like this is what we're supposed to be trying to, we're supposed to be developing the capacity to do that. And so mindfulness to me, contemplative education, ways that we can come together for teaching and learning that are infused with the support of these practices is exactly what we have to have for 21st century teaching, learning, and democracy. Okay. So we're five minutes away from when I know you have to take another call. So um, first let me say, I, I wish we had a little more time. Maybe I can I can uh, convince you to, to come back in a couple of months or something. <laughs> we can continue the conversation. I would be honored. Meanwhile, let me try to squeeze in one more question. I'm kind of torn. Uh, I was going to pick up on the police. You mentioned police, and I was thinking um, – this, you know, you're making an ask. As we said, there are different kinds of people in your class coming at this from different angles. You've got white people, people of color. You're making an ask of all of them. You're asking all of them to do something challenging at one point yes. or another. That's true. And I would imagine that thinking about police who have done certain kinds of things would be one of the extreme asks of some of, well, maybe some of the white people, but, but also <laughs> some of the people of color. I mean, what, uh, how hard can that get? I mean, let's imagine the extreme case of, of uh, uh, a cop who has shot somebody without justification. That's like the yeah. – the uh, and probably was uh, under – you know, uh, might well not have shot the person had the person been white. Um, do you, have you dealt with cases like that? Yes, somewhat. I mean, not uh, – yes, the answer is um, – Yes, I have. And that's hard. It is. It's really hard. And not losing sight of our humanity is, I think, the ultimate uh, invitation of what it means to actually make the most of this moment of our lives. And so that means that just as I would want and hope that if my child or my son or I or any one of us has a moment in which we do something that we at some point might regret, as, as Brian Stevenson, the famous death penalty lawyer, mm-hmm. often puts it, um, and others in that field will say, none of us wants to be judged as, as if, you know, that the worst moment of our lives is all we are. Mm-hmm. And that has to be true even for that cop. And it seems to me that that's ultimately, even as we might together try to find a way toward accountability, mm-hmm. we don't at the same time want to suggest that we throw people outside the, 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 the scope of human concern and, and compassion. So it's that complexity of holding. With a certain kind of audience, that's a hard thing to say. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've gotten the reactions to prove it. Um, the, the, uh, and it's understandable that, it, that, that, that there are people who have, uh, trouble warming up to that view right away. Absolutely. Uh, um, le- so, so, uh, so again, you've got to go. Let me, let me just, uh, uh, maybe as a kind of a tease, tell people the other question I was tempted, I was, uh, <laughs> thinking about asking you. And if we do, uh, uh, we can schedule another conversation down the road. Maybe we'll start with this. It's about call out culture and this whole, oh, yeah. you, you, we know what call out <laughs> culture is. 
mm-hmm. someone it's a similar kind of thing you may, mm-hmm. might catch somebody in their worst moment and you summon mass condemnation and and there's a line uh in your writing rather than calling people out i suggest what if we try to call them in into more nuanced nuanced and compassionate conversations about ways of addressing these issues more effectively together maybe we can uh, pick up the conversation there if 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 indeed you turn out to have time yes. to talk Meanwhile, let me just um, remind people, the name of the book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness, available uh, both as an actual book and as an audio book. Indeed. As I I can attest. So thanks so much uh, for the time. The name is Rhonda McGee. Are you on Twitter? Is there anything you want to – okay, what's the Twitter handle? R.V. McGee. M, that's M A G E E R V McGee. I'm at Robert Ryder. Not that anybody yeah. asked. W R I G H T E R. But thanks so much, Rhonda. Thank and you, Bob. I look forward to being in another conversation with you before today. Great. I will make it happen. All right. Thank you. All right. Be well. Okay. Bye bye.